Father, we do consecrate our lives to you. A sign of that is the fact that we come to you with hearts that would obey your instruction. May we listen to the words of Jesus, watch the actions of Jesus, follow him all the days of our lives. Lord, we know that there are those in this room and beyond who do not know you, who are not genuine followers of your son Jesus, who are not true disciples, who have not denied themselves and taken up their cross and followed after you. And so, Lord, we ask today that they would see this moment as an opportunity to believe the gospel, to follow Jesus, to determine to let his payment for their sin and his righteousness produced on this earth cover them in the judgment. Lord, give them faith in Jesus. Call them to yourself. Grant them repentance and faith today. All of us, we want to express our faith by listening to your word with obedient hearts. Help us do this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's a blessing to be back with you for another week. What a magnificent privilege we have to open our Bibles to Matthew and study again the life and words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today we'll be looking at that reality as Christians, we live our lives in two separate kingdoms. It's a tale of two kingdoms, so to speak. So Jesus and subsequently the apostles taught often in the New Testament of how we are to live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom and yet at the same time operate as good Christian citizens in our own earthly kingdoms, the nations of the world. I would refer you to Augustine's book, City of God. He breaks it down further into really four different kingdoms that we have to deal with. I definitely commend that book to you, but I've already described that book. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, I believe when I introduced chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I believe we talked about it in more detail there. But the idea there and here Jesus presents is that we live in these two kingdoms, two rules, the temporary, oftentimes godless nations of this world where we are citizens until we die, and the eternal kingdom of heaven where our citizenship is forever. Does being citizens of the two cause tension and turmoil? You bet it does, especially recently as so many of us have had to deal with regulations coming down from employers and sometimes government employers. There's not one week during this whole COVID crisis, there's hardly a week that's gone by that I've not talked with someone who is in some kind of dilemma, seemingly a moral or ethical dilemma. In their service to one, they feel forced to violate the other. And so this is very applicable to our day. And it's something that's not just sort of wrapping up here in America. If it wraps up sort of in some way now, it will certainly pick up again one day and we will have to return to the teaching of Jesus and remind ourselves of these great truths. Well, just following the flow here, Jesus is up on the Temple Mount. We've been following Him. It's the last week of His life, the last week of His public ministry. The wicked leaders of Israel are confronting Him time and time again. They try to trap Him with His words, try to catch Him with some violation that is either a legal violation or a religious violation. And so Jesus begins responding to them in parables. 
And he speaks specifically, we saw this in chapter 21, he speaks specifically to the religious leaders and puts them in parable form and teaches them that they are indeed false. They're false in terms of their religion. They're false in terms of their worship of God. They're false in terms of their Judaism, which should be something that points them to the Messiah, but they had used a false form of Judaism to draw people away from Christ. And so these religious leaders, they are mad. They're trying to catch him in his words. And they try over and over here in Matthew chapter 22 to snare him in his words, to get him to say something that would give them cause to arrest and kill him. But Jesus not only confounds them, proving his total control over the situation, he does it in a way that instructs us all. So in chapter 23, as he begins to respond, and as he further responds to these religious leaders, he's instructing really all of us. The whole crowd there is instructed by those responses. And so we're taught about the kingdom of God in this chapter as well. The first lesson we saw last week was really an evangelistic lesson. How can a person know if he's the elect? How can he know if he's one of the chosen, someone who will dine in eternity around the supper table of the Lamb? How can you know you're in the kingdom of God? Today, Jesus then teaches us how we live as faithful citizens of that kingdom and yet also live in the world as citizens of earthly, godless kingdoms. And the way it comes up is a challenge by the Pharisees and others about taxes. Let's look at this story together, study the words of Jesus. Matthew 22, beginning of verse 15, and we'll go down to 22. And the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for tax. They brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. God bless the reading of his word. Some years ago, I preached a sermon that intersected with a subject matter that was something in the news, something that was going on in our government and our politics. And I got an angry letter, not the first letter I'd received in ministry, uh, certainly not the last letter. I will say early in my ministry here, I did receive more letters, and that's probably because the congregation was a little bit different, and I was a little less mature and got a few more of those letters early on. doesn't really bother me. I'm not really affected emotionally by these things. It sort of goes with the territory of being a pastor. You put yourself up here, you preach, and people are going to say things. But this letter, as I read it, it made a big point of saying that the pastor should never, ever, under any circumstance, say anything about government or politics. Now, to this sentiment, I could not be more sympathetic. I don't like politics. I'm extremely skeptical, even to the point of being 100% pessimistic that politicians or bills or presidents 
or courts can do anything to expedite or halt the kingdom of God. I don't like it. I don't like it when preachers, even my favorite preachers, pause their faithful exposition of the Word of God to rail on the government, even if I share their opinion, share their point of view. I believe the growth of the kingdom is 100% independent of the government's actions. The power of the Word of God completely trumps any act or law or president or bill or Congress. I think most would agree that with Jesus when He says, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against His kingdom. However, though that sentiment runs deep within me, if in our walk through Scripture, the Bible teaches us something about our relationship with the government, I am duty-bound to deliver that information, that truth to you in such a way that will encourage you and will help you along your way. Today we look at one of those times, one of the few times Jesus did address this. There are a few times in the Bible, we read a couple uh, moments ago, one from Peter, one from Paul, uh, some words from the apostles about how we relate to government. And I hope to give you three principles, three statements that I believe represent what Jesus is saying here. And I hope that this will encourage you in the way in which we deal with government, especially our attitude and actions. Point number one, or statement number one, our confidence is in God, not government. You heard that even emotionally come from me moments ago. Our confidence is not in government. It is rather in God. Now, you have to understand a little bit what's going on in the time of Jesus. Jesus, in our passage here, brings up Caesar. That was the reign and rule of Caesar. This was the Roman Empire. The coin that he asked for would have, that was produced at Denarius would have had a picture of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius ruled from 14 AD to 37 AD, so really from Jesus' teenage years until after he ascended. Tiberius was a former general. In fact, he was a pretty violent imperialist ruler. The life in the Roman government was bad because of him, but it was not just because of him. It was also bad because most scholars agree by this time the, the genius of the Roman Republic, the, the senators and the representative-style government, was unraveling. And there was all kinds of corruption. In fact, by that time, I read an article this week, by that time in, in the Ro history of the Roman Empire, by that time, most of the senators, most of the people who were in power to... Uh, represent the people, the common people, and be there for their benefit, most of what they did was to ensure that they were wealthy and could be in power for the rest of their lives. Does that sound a little familiar? On top of the, that corruption, there was the issue of slavery. This was still alive and well. A vast portion of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. Just to give you a number, 40% of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire were slaves. Just to give you a comparison, during its peak in American history, only 18% of America were slaves. Now, the slaves in Roman history were a little bit different. They did have standing. Some of them were wealthy. Some of them were even doctors and nurses and had education. But there were many that were much like what we think of in terms of American slavery. Much of them were, were treated as, as cattle. They were mistreated. They were sex slaves. They were abused. They were murdered. 
I was reading another article this week about how when Caesar decided to sell off 53,000 of his personal slaves and the kind of abuse and kind of human trafficking, all, the, all those things that those images conjure up, all that was happening there in the Roman Empire. Not just permitted, not just the empire turning a blind eye, actually actively involved in this human trafficking. Something else you can remember about this moment in history when Jesus was speaking these words, in the middle of this Roman Empire, there's a certain level of religious freedom. In spite of that, there was a prolific and there began to be an enforced emperor cult, meaning it was more and more broadly accepted that the emperor himself was a god, or at least half a god. The coin that Jesus had someone produce, that denarius, had Tiberius Caesar on there, but it was not just coinage like where you put our dead presidents on there. It actually would say things religious on there. In fact, that very coin, it is printed, Son of God, on one side, and the other side, it's printed High Priest, because he would be over all the religious activity of his empire. In those early centuries after Jesus, it was sort of coming up, bubbling up during the time of Jesus, but it really took on uh, 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 much more life after Jesus. When you paid taxes, you would actually have to say, Caesar is Lord, and many Christians refusing to say that were persecuted and killed. These emperors thought themselves as God. The emperors were wicked, wicked people. Emperors usually had a wife. Actually, most would have several wives. They would have an official wife, but several other women to whom they would be married. But it was also public knowledge that emperors would also have what they called pure delicat, which literally means delightful boys. And I'll let your imagination go from there. This was common practice that they would wed these boys, unicize them, and they would be slaves the rest of their lives. So you talk about corruption from the top down. Besides all this immorality and slavery, there was corruption in the Senate. It enjoyed a, a, a system of taxing whereby each level of people who collected taxes were allowed, and it was enforced by Roman army that they could just take whatever they wanted. This is why people in the first century hated tax collectors so much, because the tax may be 1%, but the, a tax collector could say, no, well, I want another 4% of your income. And they had the army right behind them to come in and beat you or kill you if you didn't give him what he wanted. Now, again, all of this, even if there was some level of freedom, some level of freedom of movement, some level of religious freedom, freedom even some level of economic growth that was happening, all of this was a system of widespread corruption, graft. It was a racket. It was a fraud. There was fraud in government. There was poverty. There was sickness. This resulted in poverty and sickness and corruption and disease. There was warfare. There were refugees moving around all the time. All the worst social ills that you can imagine. And the question I have is, what's Jesus' response to all this? And what should my response be? How did he think? How did he talk? Was he a social reform machine? Was he into social justice? Did he call for demonstrations? Did he issue out petitions? Did he call for a revolution, a violent revolution of all this? 
Was he apathetic? Did he say, I could care less about all this? Look there at verse 15 again. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see what they're doing. You have the Herodians, which would have been in favor of taxation. If Jesus would have told them no, the Herodians would have reason, even legal reason, to arrest Jesus on the spot, perhaps even put him to death for sedition. The Pharisees may have felt the opposite. We're not exactly sure about the Pharisees' relationship with Herodians, mainly because we don't exactly know much about these Herodians, but it's clear by being called Herodians, they were in favor of the Roman government and Herod's government. But it seems like the Pharisees would have taken the opposite position, at least in their words, would have said, uh, we don't need to pay taxes to this wicked. Look at this wicked, vile government. It's oppressive. It's come over us. We are God's people. We're supposed to shirk off the authority and rule of the Romans. And so perhaps they were thinking if Jesus said the opposite, if he said, no, we should pay taxes, perhaps they thought, well, we can arrest him on religious grounds. They're hoping to back Jesus into a corner so that they could arrest him and kill him. So they come to Jesus, their mouths are full of flattery. They're trying to suck him into this discussion and get him to say something. But they failed. They failed miserably. Why? Well, for one thing, Jesus is brilliant, and he gave them an answer, a magnificent answer that not only confounded their plans, but also instructed us, instructed his followers. But the ultimate reason is clearly bigger than this. The ultimate reason that they were unsuccessful is because God is in complete control of this situation. Jesus is in complete control as a part of the triune God. He's in complete control of the situation. Jesus is not concerned, are they going to get me this time? Is this going to happen? He wasn't nervous about what they were doing. He is in absolute control of what's going on. God had ordained to, down to the nanosecond when he would be arrested, when he would be tried, when he would be put on the cross, and that wasn't the time. Jesus was in absolute control as part of the Godhead. He's in control of the situation. I remind you of what Jesus said. No one can take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So here are these people. They've got all these plans. They come to Jesus again and again and again and again all throughout this chapter. But nothing can thwart the plan of God. Jesus, as a part of the triune Godhead, he was in total control of the situation, and it's literally laughable, Psalm 2, that any king or emperor or Pharisee or Herodian could thwart the plan of God to put Jesus on the cross at the right time. And so this is something we just see in Jesus. There's this confidence, there's this authority with which Jesus spoke that dominates this whole chapter. He doesn't seem to be nervous. He doesn't seem to be worried about the crowds or about the Pharisees or the Herodians or anybody else, even the Sanhedrin. Later on, when it 
Jesus is arrested, and he's before, right before he's arrested, but he's in the garden sweating drops of blood. It's not because he's concerned about what they're going to do to him or he's worried about what's going to happen. It's because he knows he is going to face the judgment of God for other people's sin. It's not because he's worried about the government. He knew God's plan. And his confidence and his words and his actions here are in total confidence of what God is going to do. He is not worrying. He's demonstrating again and again his authority in every situation. Well, how does this apply to us? We live in a day where the genius of the American Republic is dying. It's been replaced with sophisticated con men we call Congress. Wickedness thrives, paganism, immorality, corruption, graft. It's all around us, and it seems that every single year it gets worse, sometimes exponentially worse, and we're just shocked. We're shocked that they would consider now, some senators in Florida are considering that it's okay to kill a baby up to 27 days after it's born. It's shocking. I'll remind you, not just in the history of Hawaii, but also in the history of the Roman Empire, people would kill babies. It seems to be something that wicked people love to do. Wickedness is thriving all around us, but it's utterly laughable to think that some president or some judge or some congressman or some bill or some act or some law can change in any way the sovereign plan of God. Can't do anything. Look to the calm confidence of Jesus. Here he is in the last week of his life in this wicked empire. He had total confidence in God's power. He had total confidence in God's plan. Some of us, and I admit sometimes it's me when I read the news too much, my spirit, my attitude, my joy can be governed not by a confidence in God, but by what is on the news channels. And it betrays the fact that my confidence in God has waned. Does that mean we shouldn't be involved in politics? No, I, I think that all of us can do what our conscience tells us in terms of our involvement in politics or current events. You may somehow feel that it's tied to your duty, and that's perfectly fine, and we shouldn't judge one another. There's all people on all sides of the spectrum here at our church, and we shouldn't push and judge one another as far as our involvement in government. But it should be apparent, no matter who we are, no matter how much or how little we're involved, it should be apparent that our confidence is in God, not in government. The latest outrage should not control your joy. The latest action of the Senate or the President or the former President shouldn't control your spirit, your attitude. It shouldn't dominate your demeanor. You ought to live like Jesus did his last week of his life with a calm confidence in God whose kingdom is marching forward and cannot be stopped. We read it moments ago, Romans 13, verse 1. There is no authority except from God. It doesn't say that God morally approves, His moral will approves of what the president or whoever else is doing something. But it does mean that God is in absolute control. 
There is no authority except from God. Oh, but he stole the election. 1 Peter 2.13, governors, princes, emperors are sent by God. But he's rewarding evil and punishing the righteous. The king's heart, Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. We need to demand our rights. We need to be angry about this, Psalm 2. The nations rage, the people plot, the kings and rulers take counsel together and set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's a joke that they can do anything to thwart God's plan. Of all people, people we read this a moment ago in 1 Peter, we should be free from the stress and the chaos of rulers and governments and current events. doesn't mean some of us might feel the need to be more involved in affecting some sort of change. But all of us should carry with us the confidence that Jesus did His last week of His life, a confidence in God, not in government. Number two, I promise it gets easier. We should cheerfully pay our dues to government. Jesus gives a well-known statement here. He asks for a coin, verse 18. They bring him a denarius, verse 20. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, the question always comes up somewhere in this discussion. When is civil disobedience permitted? I got instructions this week from our flag, my, my admiral up high, that the Navy is no longer taking adverse actions against those who chose not to take the vaccine and suspending all actions that had begun against those sailors. So that debacle is finally ending. But some sailors in the reserves, I think it was 3%, that's thousands of sailors, refused the order to get vaccinated. Many of them did this on religious grounds. They felt it was religiously wrong. They applied for a religious accommodation. That's why chaplains were involved. You know, that's a form of civil disobedience. Well, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about civil disobedience. In fact, that phrase is much, comes much later than the Bible. There are no direct examples of civil disobedience in the Bible, but there are some hints around some things that were happening. And the best we can really conclude is that when the government requires you to do something you believe from Scripture is sinful, that's when civil disobedience is permitted. Because ultimately, you answer to God, not to government, right? And there we do have vague illusions of civil disobedience. I think, again, we think about what was beginning to happen at the time of Jesus. It became much more popular, uh, much more of a, uh, uh, a standard later on. But that idea that people would have to say, worship, basically worship Caesar, say Caesar is Lord, Later on, of course, we couldn't say that as Christians. We would have to join those Christians who said, I can't say that. I'll pay my taxes, but I will not worship Caesar. Much of us probably would have been persecuted or died in those early years. What if you're a soldier who works for the Russian military right now? A wicked empire going after a much smaller country who surprisingly is tough. What if you're in that supply line? You just want to be a good soldier, and you're asked to make sure that Russian soldiers get supplies. Well, I don't know. You have to think about it. You have to pray about this. You have to wonder, is this right? Am I disobeying God by obeying my government? Ultimately, you answer to God, so you have to ask those questions. 
And by the way, the pastors are here to help you. We can help you think through those things, work through those things, talk about those things. We don't like to legislate. These are definitely uh, personal convictions that you draw in terms of application of the Scripture. You're not going to stand around here and make laws. Uh, you notice we didn't do that during the, during the pandemic. We didn't make rules and regulations about masks, and we just felt like we need to leave that up to you. We felt like it would be legalistic for us to come and enforce and walk around and enforce those things. These are up to the people. And, of course, part of this idea of civil disobedience comes when you start talking about paying taxes. How many of our tax dollars are going to pay for abortions, to fund the homosexual agenda, to work actively to undermine Christianity? Millions, perhaps billions? Does that justify not paying taxes? Well, the answer is no. And the main reason, I think it's still safe to say, maybe not for long, but I think it's safe to say that the Roman Empire in Jesus' day was still worse than America, and Jesus said, just pay your taxes. He didn't say, you know, it's really good that the Roman government doesn't do anything wicked with the money we give them. <laughs> They're just so good. He just says, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The reason I say cheerfully is, beca cheerfully is because there's really a, a great benefit to an ordered society. Again, the questions get more muddled as a society begins to, to fail and things fall apart and anarchy starts to reign. I understand there'll be more of a dilemma, but when there's an ordered society and there are police and there's a governance, governance of some sort and there's an infrastructure, there is one, it may not be good, there's something going on. If there's these things that are happening, it really is a good thing. And we read verses moments ago. It's a good thing to live in a governed society. So just pay your taxes. It's a good thing to be in a governed society. Though you may believe, like I do, and I believe most of the other Christians would understand, most of your money in terms of taxes go to lining the pockets of wicked people. The rest of it mostly goes to doing horrible things in this world, and then just a far tiny little proportion goes to defending us and doing good things. But thanks to that very taxation, we enjoy certain things, living in an ordered society, including the freedom to come here and worship in this very building with electricity, the PA system. So let's cheerfully pay our dues. What does Jesus say at the end of the statement? Using that same verb, it's applied to the second statement as well. Render to God the things that are God's. Point number three, we should more cheerfully render our lives to God. I don't think Jesus' example of an image imprinted on the coin was just a random example that he pulled out of thin air. What, or rather who, bears the image of God? We do, right? Humans, all the way back to Genesis 1. God, God had created the earth and the foliage, the seas, the animals, the fish, even the insects. And then it says in verse 26 of Genesis 1, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
Verse 27 is probably an ancient song. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A familiar passage. What does this mean in terms of image bearing? I'm not going to exhaust this doctrine, but let me give you a few things. Obviously, we can rule out the pagan idea that we are gods because first and foremost, he doesn't say, it's not what he says, let's create little gods. Let's create more of us. It says he created humans as image bearers. I think first of all, you have to acknowledge that he created man and woman. He did this from nothing. He created these completely mature adult human beings. This rules out that we came from a lower species. Rules out in terms of image bearing, it, it, it mimics the idea that God exists. There wasn't some time that God was in progress or God was less than he was than he is today. He's sort of growing God. He's learning how to be a better God. He's something less many millennia ago, but now he's bigger and better and more powerful. No, God created humans as fully adult, communicating people, image bearers. Secondly, it means if we represent, it secondly means as image bearers that we represent God on this earth. You notice immediately this image-bearing creation is supposed to have dominion over the earth. There's, there's a, a kingly quality to it, to it. The earth that is God's and this representative rule is going to come. They're going to re- represent me here on this earth. On God's behalf, they will rule. Third, image-bearing means we are given reason. We are given the ability to worship. You're given a moral consciousness. You're given complex and detailed communication. Yes, I know whales can squeak, but not much more. They try to prove how complicated, and it is pretty amazing how some of these animals can communicate, but it has nothing, nothing to how humans can communicate, right? I did more in the first five minutes of this sermon than any animal has ever communicated. So God, in terms of image bearing, gives humans the ability to communicate complex ideas, complex thoughts, complex emotions. Man has a soul or spirit. Man has the ability to worship God and communicate that worship to others. And then in his worship of God, glorifying God, they can praise him with these beautiful minds that he gives us. We are aimed at him. We are aimed at glorifying him, reflecting his glory to the world. Well, what happened? Well, God made these image bearers there in chapter 1. Chapter 2, there's a more detailed uh, description of how humans were created. And then chapter 3, we have the fall, which inclines me to believe the fall happened pretty quick. Man rejected his God-given role as image bearer, as Yahweh worshiper. So without redemption, that image bearing ability dies Thanks to that first Adam, our ability to bear the image of God is is corrupted. It is dead and dying. However, thanks to the second Adam, this ability is restored. The Bible says Jesus perfectly reflects the glory of God, Hebrews 1.3. It says in Colossians 1.15, He's the image of the invisible God. And John reminds us that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus came to us to unify us to Himself so that we will regain that image-bearing Ability, one's here on God's behalf, being his body represented in this world.
And let's wrap this up. We have the Lord's table here in a moment. All that to say this, Jesus says, give your tax to the government. That's, that's nothing. What you really need to do is give your lives to God. Give everything to God. Everything that you have, everything that you are. All your relationships. You submit these things to God's rule. You're like that little coin. You have the imprint of God upon you. And you owe God your very existence. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you have to be saved, right? You need to understand Christ has given His life to rectify this fall, to fix what happened in the garden, to make you alive. You who were dead were made alive in Christ. So you give your life to Him, trusting that His payment on the cross does indeed pay for your sin, that He produces righteousness that covers you, that He's been raised from the dead and is a precursor to your own physical resurrection. You believe in Him. You give Him your life. And that's why Jesus says, take up your cross and follow after Me. You give Him everything, and you follow after Him, and you deny yourself because you realize you are created in the image of God. As Christians, we remember this. We look back to this idea of, of being in the image of God and that coin that Jesus even spoke of that day and just handing that coin to the emperor, the same action, handing your life to God. God, you are in, in complete control of my life. Take complete control of my life. Well, as we come to the Lord's table here in a minute, that's really what the Lord's table represents that we have taken to us, taken to our hearts, appropriated the truth of Christ crucified so that we can live in union with Christ and be alive to give our lives as a living sacrifice to God, which is our due service. Let's pray that God would help us in this. Lord, we do need help even as believers. We need help all the time to remember that our lives are not our own. We are bought with a price. Lord, that we would give every bit of our lives, not just finances, but every bit of our lives to you, that you would be in complete control. And that means even if you give us a command to pay taxes, we'll pay taxes. Lord, help us do this. Help us thread the needle. I know for every individual it's probably a little bit different about what civil disobedience and how we think about the government. But Lord, help us to submit to Christ in following Him by showing and demonstrating, whether it's on social media or wherever, may we demonstrate that we have confidence in God, not in government. Lord, it's so easy to complain, especially as Christians and all the wickedness that happens in our government. It just seems worse and worse every year. It's so easy to criticize and complain and condemn. Lord, help us to see that by doing so, we're betraying the idea that we have confidence in man, confidence in governments. Lord, we do not. We have confidence in you. You have mapped out every nanosecond of this world. You are in complete control. Your kingdom will not be thwarted. You'll rule the growth of the kingdom, the expansion of the kingdom. Even in wicked America, even in other wicked places all across this world. It's expanding. It's growing. You are drawing people to yourself. 
And we rejoice in this. We rejoice in your total sovereign control over everything. Help our words, our attitudes, our actions speak to this truth. Speak to the calm assurance that we have, just like Jesus had in the last, day, last week of his life. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.